I'm Molly Alter. And I'm Brian Offit. And together, we're the hosts of Hands On, a new podcast from Index Ventures. Hands On is all about giving listeners an authentic look at how startup leaders drive success, growth, and strategy. Like picking something up and examining it from all angles, with Hands On, we look closely at what it takes to build companies, careers, and relationships. We've got a lot of experience in this arena, but it's really our guest stories that shine brightest. And it's our privilege that they so freely share their treasured insight and hard-earned wisdom with us. And you, our listeners. So now, without further ado, let's get into it. Alrighty, howdy everyone. I'm really excited to be joined today by Emily Sherio. Emily is a friend of mine who has had quite the illustrious career, particularly over the past few years, and is one of those people that seems to be able to fit 26 hours into a 24-hour day. So Emily is currently the data strategist in residence at Amplify Partners, one of our friendly venture capital firms focused on investments in software infrastructure and kind of all things technical. Prior to Amplify, Emily was the director of data at Netlify, and before that was the first data analyst at GitLab, a company folks might be familiar with as they just had a very illustrious IPO just a few weeks ago. So congrats to you on that, Emily. We're really excited to have her here to talk about all things related to data, community, early adoption of technology, and a whole variety of other topics. So Emily, thanks so much for joining. Thanks, Brian. I'm so happy to be here. Awesome. Well, one of the things we like to start with, Emily, before we get into some of the topics that I mentioned, is to do some quick questions to get to know you a little bit better. We have a list that we go through, but I'm going to ask you my favorite one, because I think you get some really interesting answers, which is, who was your childhood hero? And in particular, who is your childhood hero, and how do you think that's influenced who you are today? It sounds almost cliche to say it out loud, but definitely my mom. So my mom came to the U.S. from Brazil not knowing English and with no money. Like she left on the day the banks closed uh, or the banks froze the money. And it's like a very interesting part of Brazilian history. But no money, no English, like has some really kind of gnarly horror stories around living situations where there were like seven women to a one bedroom apartment and doing whatever it took to kind of like make a life for herself. And she just worked so hard all the time. And I think having that example growing up really shaped how I thought about work and how I approached the schoolwork and then the work work that I've taken on. Like I started working at Dunkin' Donuts as soon as I could. So my mom has spent the last 20 years working at Dunkin' Donuts. And like that was my first job. And I grew in a lot of ways. I grew up inside of a Dunkin' Donuts. And one of the reasons I was really good at math as a child is because I spent a lot of time working cash registers because coffee is very hot. You can burn yourself on coffee as a kid, but you can't burn yourself on counting change. And so I got very good at counting change pretty early because I was always working the register whenever I went to work with my mom. So definitely my mom And I can see kind of how her ethic from stories, but also from what we saw growing up, really shapes how I still think about work today. 
Yeah, and I'd love to dig into that a little bit later on in the conversation. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels I'd imagine around your propensity to be an early adopter of technologies and trends and things along those lines and the risk that comes with that. I'd imagine a lot of that is influenced by your mother. And then also, you know, I can't help but draw the parallel between counting change and, and analytics where a lot of what you're doing is, is counting something, though not always revenue. That may be one of the things, but there's kind of a pretty wide spectrum. But as a follow-up question to that, it's similar, but it's a little bit different. You know, beyond your mom, what would you say are the kind of three key influences that you had growing up, whether it's a formative childhood experience, maybe it's Dunkin' Donuts experience. We could talk about that a little bit. But love to hear about how you think about the three things that you think have influenced you the most into who you are today. I don't know that these are like for sure the three most influential, but one that that really comes to mind is the VFA credo. So post-grad, I joined a fellowship called Venture for America, and VFA places recent college grads in startups in non-traditional cities, so not in New York, not in Silicon Valley, not in Boston, but in Cleveland and Cincinnati and Baltimore. And I joined VFA, joined an early stage startup, and VFA has these like five credos that kind of guide the fellowship experience. Value creation is how I measure achievement. I will create opportunities for myself and others is the one that's really something I've held on to, that it's not enough for me to do these things for me. It's really important to me to be able to also make an impact and make things better for the people coming behind me and bringing people with me along the way. So that's one that really jumps out to me. I think another that I'd point to, so I'm a military spouse. Military families on average move once every 2.9 years. We have moved way more than that. I am in like my fifth address in the last six years. And you have to be able to like up and move and plant roots quickly and figure out what it is to thrive in this ambiguousness of when are you going to have to move, what comes next. And I went to Catholic elementary schools that closed. So I went to one and then that closed and I went to another and that closed and then I went to another and that has since closed. And that like transition when you're 10, 12, it's the end of the world. It's, oh my gosh, what is happening? But today I can see, I can draw a line of how that shaped the experience now. Yeah. And do you think that comfort and chaos has influenced you today as someone who has spent a lot of their career in startups where, you know, a lot of leadership in startups in particular is getting comfort with that chaos. Do you think some of the things you've learned from that life experience has influenced your professional life? Definitely. Yeah. I thrive in that ambiguous, I I don't know what's going on sort of situation where I need to figure it out. And that's not scary to me. I, I meet people all the time who are like, how do you do it when there's no checklist? And I'm like, you make the checklist. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's a nice transition. We've got so much to talk about today, but one of the things I wanted to start with is the GitLab experience. And you talked about making the checklist. And when you went to GitLab, you were the first person on the data analytics team, right? And, and you're kind of given this opportunity to kind of lay the foundation for that entire initiative. But with that comes a lot of responsibility and a lot of nebulousness. And you've done this numerous times in your career. GitLab is just one. So we'd love to talk through what that experience was like and how you approached going in and laying that foundation, given things were pretty wide open when you joined. So much about that early GitLab experience can be summarized with like thriving in ambiguity and chaos. 
because my first day of work at GitLab was the day the Microsoft acquisition of GitHub was announced. So crazy day to join. People are PR, marketing, comms, social media is going crazy. And I'm like, where do I fill out my I-9 paperwork? <laughs> like, what an interesting first day. I was the first data analyst, and I started on the same day as our second data engineer, Thomas Lapiana, and we were both hired by then-manager Taylor Murphy, who's now head of product at Meltano, and we came in to really build out what wasn't there. And I think there were a couple of things that made me and that early stage of the team successful. One is taking the approach of like making fast decisions and recognizing when something was a one-way door versus a two-way door and then moving as quickly as possible through the two-way door. And what I mean by that is like having opinions about data warehouse design and just going with it. And in the three plus years since I started, my opinions have evolved. I can say I've gotten better and I have like different opinions. I've seen where things have failed, but we were better off making the decision and going than we were spinning our wheels. And that's something that I really coached my team at Netlify. Like if it's a two-way door, just make the decision. Don't even ask. Document that you did it and keep going. If it's a one-way door, there are more things to consider, but the vast majority of decisions are two-way doors. And what I like to remind folks is like, we're not brain surgeons. It's probably not a life and death decision. So it's okay if we have to revisit it as long as we can. Yeah, I think it's a great framework. And I actually say similar things, you know, everyone experiences their day-to-day -day stress and sometimes reframing things as we just got to make a decision. It's not the end of the world if we don't make the perfect decision can be really helpful in giving people the confidence to actually go through the door, right? Because oftentimes you have the ability to revisit those decisions. And particularly in a startup environment, I think often the only wrong decision is to not make a decision. And I think as an engineer in particular, I often struggle with that, right? Where engineers have the mindset of like, what are the n different ways that this could go wrong, right? And oftentimes, you know, any decision has trade-offs. And so you're always going to have those things that could go wrong. But having the courage to sort of charge forward, continuously reevaluate the decision over time to understand if you need to go back through that door, but just making sure that you're making forward progress rather than spinning your wheels. And I think it's true of life as well. You know, I talk to a lot of folks that are coming out of college, think about what they want to do with their career. And my advice is always like, pick something, follow your interests, reevaluate. And if in a year you're not interested in it, then do your best to pivot into something you're more interested in because the likelihood that you pick exactly right as a new graduate is is pretty low. And so you just got to have the courage to try things and see where it goes. So two things I'll add there. So the first I learned from GitLab CEO, Sid Sabrandi, and he used to say like, we don't need to solve hypothetical problems. And I think about that a lot. Like, yes, you want to know what the edge cases are, the way this, this thing can go wrong. But like, is it likely? No? Great. We can solve that problem when it becomes a problem. Until then, we don't need to solve hypothetical problems. And then two, my direct reports will tell you that I say this all the time, like, what can you ship in the next hour? And inevitably, because we're terrible at estimating, it's never an hour. It's like half a day. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> but... If you scope it down to like, what can I do that's valuable and is small and doesn't exist today, but it's more valuable than what exists today? Like that is a great way to just like 
make iterative improvements that make an impact without solving for all the problems in the world. Yeah, totally. And it's make the decision on what you know, not what you think might be. Yeah. I think is another way of thinking about it. Because any given time you make a decision, there are things that you know to be true. And what holds you back is often, well, what if? But, you know, what ifs are what ifs. So focus on what's in front of you. Make the decision based on that data. And then if the what if becomes true, reevaluate that decision now that you have that new input. But so much more to talk about on this topic. And we haven't even touched on the topic of community, which I'm really excited to talk about in a little bit. But before that, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Emily to talk more about leadership, data, community, and forging your own path and creating your own checklist. And we are back with Emily here, really excited to continue our conversation. Earlier in the podcast, we got to talk about things like charging your own path and comfort with chaos, two things that Emily has done extraordinarily well. Amongst many other things, Emily, you've been someone who's not just taken kind of big risks on new technical projects. You've also been a big voice in leading the conversation of, around how to completely reimagine how people do data-driven work and fundamentally shifting how people think about the products that they deliver on the data side of things, how they structure their teams in order to deliver that, and how you build community around those initiatives to take sort of an idea that might be shared by a small number of people and sharing it with the broader world. And you've seen these communities grow enormously over the past few years. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about that and the community portion of leadership, right? There's the community portion of leadership in the small sense where you have kind of your team and that is your own small community. And then you've also had a lot of good experience on building community in a larger sense. So Slack rooms that have thousands of people that are engaging around a variety of data topics. So maybe we can take them both in turn and start with how you think about building a community around data within a company, right? That's obviously a huge focus of the work that you're doing now and involves getting on board, not just the data team, but kind of everyone within the organization, which ends up being quite a complicated social challenge. So I'd love to hear about some of your experience at GitLab, Netlify, and now in your new role around building community within companies around the best possible data hygiene. I think one of the big failure modes for data teams is being stuck in a service model. And so when folks think of data teams, they think about it in terms of those are the people who fetch the numbers that we need for something. And that is not great for like a thousand and one reasons. And I could start listing them and we'd be here all day. I think the thing to note is that like data people can do a lot more than just fetch numbers for you. And they need to be a part of your strategic decision making. It's hard where they are also, in a lot of ways, the gatekeepers to data that people want to do a lot more than just what the data team wants to do. And so I think there's two parts to it. You have to recognize that some portion of your work is always going to be service work. And figuring out how to do that while you do the other work that you have to do is important. But this is the second part. It is much more important that your data team is proactively surfacing information to the business. And the reason for that is that one, 
you are prioritizing that work. You're making sure they're working on the right work. But two, that will start to shape the conversations in the business with the information that you're pushing out. And so the organization will start to shape their conversations around the data adoption, around the the things that they have data with. And in turn, your team will do analyses that kind of reinforce and shape those conversations. And now you have a feedback loop around using data in your company. And that buys you the space for your team to continue to do that proactive insights-driven work. Yeah. And have you found that, you know, one of the challenges with not just data teams today, but it is often the case within organizations is overcoming the way things, you know, quote unquote, have been done, right? People are very resistant to doing things in a new way. Even if the old way is not actually that good, they're like, well, it's the way that it's done, mm-hmm. right? And I see this all the time. You see it in data, the services model thing is an example, but you see it in companies in general. It's actually one of the challenges for companies as they scale is having a willingness to reimagine the processes and ways in which they do things. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious how you've approached that in the, in the data world. Is it a matter of kind of buying small space to experiment, using those experiments to prove value to people and slowly chipping away at their preconceived construct of how a thing should be done? Is it a matter of convincing the right people to take a shot on it? I'm curious what strategies you've used that are sort of abstract to data to try to buy goodwill within the organization to shift mindsets around particular beliefs that are sometimes quite tightly held. I asked a very similar question to Elena Verna who she was previously head of growth at at SurveyMonkey. She was interim head of growth at Netlify, advisor to HP and MongoDB and all these really wonderful companies. And I said to her, like, Elena, I'm trying to carve out more time for my team to be proactive, but like, I'm having such a hard time getting bogged down with all these urgent things. How do I coach them? And I'm going to tell you the same thing I told her, but the credit really goes to Elena here. She said to me, like, start with half a day. You spend more than half a day checking email on Slack, like wasted over the course of a week anyway, like turn it off, block off your calendar and just spend half a day. And if everyone spends half a day, my team at Netlify was like 10 people. If everyone spends half a day, now 10 people have found things. And then the next week, 10 more things have been found. Now, by the end of the month, you've gathered 40, 50 things that you can surface to the business. That is slowly going to build upon itself and really change how people see the work you're doing. And if where they're getting value from the data team is from the things that you're pushing to them instead of the things they're asking you for, or in addition to the things they're asking you for, they're going to let you surface more things to them. Yeah. Yeah. There's a bit of a show don't tell thing too, right? I think lots of times where folks that are trying to drive initiatives and companies fail is that they tell folks that have decision-making power all the reasons why what they want to do is great. And at the end of the day, what you got to do is show people, Mm -hmm. right? And so finding, you know, to your comment earlier on what can we ship in an hour, finding a small win that's in the direction you want to go that you can do and show in a very short period of time buys you a little bit of goodwill. And then it just takes patience because I think lots of times people want to do sort of, you know, we're at point A and they want to get to point G, and they want to skip just to point G and do a whole overhaul of this thing, rather than finding strategic ways, as you mentioned, to carve out small pieces of it. 
And over time, those small pieces actually add up to you waking up one day and being like, oh, wow, this initiative or this organization has been completely restructured in a way that is dramatically better. But it happened over a slow, long period of time, as opposed to all in one fell swoop. Absolutely. We had this thing that I called an insights feed at Netlify, which you can think of it kind of like a a blog homepage where every blog title was the the key takeaway of the insight that if you just skimmed that headline, you walked away with something. And Tom Nagengast on my team at Netlify said to me, like, one day I realized, like, I had to keep scrolling on the page. And it's like, it doesn't happen overnight. But then suddenly you've changed the way people work. And we went on to see other parts of the organization then try to adopt this model. Yeah, totally. And the other thing that I alluded to a little bit earlier in the podcast that I love to move into now that also follows this, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, oh my goodness, look what I've built is uh, community, particularly online data communities around Slack. And you're super involved in Locally Optimistic, which in a fairly short period of time, went from a fairly small group of folks just kind of talking about data topics on the internet to a group that's now thousands of people. I mean, and and, and growing constantly and, and super, super active. So maybe would love to hear some of your philosophical beliefs on community and how one builds it, given the success that Locally Optimistic has seen. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about the things that have surprised you as that community has grown. But to start us off, yeah, I would love to hear your philosophy on community and how you approach getting people on board. Yeah. Well, Brian, I had to move my career online long before COVID. So the the story that not a lot of people know is that I married my college sweetheart, and he is active duty military. And like I said, military families move a lot. So nine months post-college, I'm living in rural North Carolina, and I know I want to grow my career. I just don't know what that looks like. And I see my friends going to like meetups and networking events, but I didn't have that opportunity where I was living. So I made mine the internet and I turned to spaces like DBT Slack and Locally Optimistic to find the networking and the connections and the mentorship that I really needed at that stage of my career online. And I'm so grateful It's been really interesting to me how my role in a lot of those spaces has evolved as my career has evolved. So early on, I was asking a lot of the questions and trying to figure out like what I should do. And over time, as I've become more senior, as I've developed my career and my connections and my network, now I'm answering a lot more of the questions. And so I consider myself an active member because these communities have given me so much And I see it as my way of giving back. Yeah, it's kind of funny how that works, right? You sort of wake up one day and the student has become the sensei. (laughs) And you're like, I don't really know how this happened, but I've accumulated a bizarre amount of knowledge about this particular thing in a super organic way. And yeah, I think the online community thing is really interesting. I'm obviously an enterprise investor, so speaking a bit out out of turn here on consumer stuff, but one of my deeply held beliefs is that business behavior tends to follow consumer behavior, right? You see this in buying behavior today, certainly. People get used to buying things on the internet. They don't talk to salespeople. Now the most common way to sell software, certainly to startups, which have a kind of a younger buyer base, is to let people try it out online and do their own research. And then they might swipe a credit card or reach out to you. 
But I think this, in many ways, these online communities, it's very much the same, right? People have been finding community online around interests in their personal life for quite a long time now, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you're interested in card games or video games or classic cars, you can go on Reddit or Twitter mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Online forum. And so, yeah, yeah. And so it's been really interesting to see how that consumer behavior or personal life behavior has now translated into mm-hmm. these online business communities in a way that makes a lot of sense, given how people spend their their time outside of work. And I think it's a really exciting transition because you get all the same benefits, right? Where someone who's in rural North Carolina can connect with someone who is in Kansas City and share ideas about how to approach their professional work, Mm -hmm. which is really quite exciting. So, Emily, we love to have a question from each co-host on this podcast. So I co-host the podcast with my colleague, Molly. And I would love to ask you her question now, which I think is a quite interesting one. And I'd love to get your answer on it in particular. People often say data is the new oil, but the difference between data and oil is oil is oil and not all data is created equal, right? The volume of data that companies are dealing with has expanded enormously. Even in the past like three or four years, the, the amount of data that your average company has has just become exponentially larger. So how do you think as a data practitioner about separating what's actually useful from what's waste? And how do you approach that both from a, I've entered a new organization that has an existing data footprint and any advice that you'd have for people that are starting from scratch? The most useful data isn't data at all. It's the context in which the data exists. And so I like to point to the Netflix example to really illustrate the case here. So the story, and you could Google like Netflix data wars. The best summary of on it is from Roger Pang at John Hopkins on their website, Simply Statistics. But the story there is that they were launching Grace and Frankie with Jane Fonda in it. And the Netflix data team ran a bunch of experiments to see which cards kind of led to the best conversion rate for people to watch the show. And the ones without Jane Fonda on the card led to higher conversion. And so they wanted to go with the cards without Jane Fonda on them. And the team that manages relationships and brand was like, no, you cannot launch these cards with not Jane Fonda on them. And I think that that's such a great story because sometimes data tells us to like optimize in this way for this one specific thing. But what's not in the data set is something around the long-term relationship with Jane Fonda and how you need to think about it in a bigger context. And it's not just about the one season of the show and getting optimized click-through. It's about a bigger picture. And that bigger picture is never in the data. It's in the context. That is much more valuable than any given data set. Yeah, that's a great answer. You know, one of the challenges of data is that you're trying to quantify what are fundamentally very abstract and extraordinarily complicated phenomenon. And you're trying to boil that down to a small number of variables that you can measure, which is inherently extraordinarily difficult. And I think a lot of the ways in which I've seen people use data incorrectly is when you don't come at it with as much intellectual honesty and objectivity as you possibly can. Because oftentimes, if you have a belief, you can use the data in front of you to confirm or deny that belief. And so, in which case, the data actually becomes an enemy to the organization because it's being used to justify decisions that are probably not the right ones. 
So that's a great answer. I think it's a, an enormous challenge. There's also, I saw a talk by a couple of folks from Stitch Fix, and they did this thing where they showed two garments to the crowd, and they had people guess which one the customer bought. You had to sit down if you guessed wrong. Mm -hmm. And they kept going until there was one person left. And if you looked at the statistics, it was roughly a 50-50 chance. You know, the number of rounds it took was related to the number of people in the room before we got to the end. And what they shared was that they did a bunch of research. And what they found is that algorithmically, you actually had a better chance to pick the correct one based on the data. But when you put it in front of people who were specialists, they were able to give you a very compelling reason as to why they chose the one that they chose. But those compelling reasons were not necessarily related to why they actually made the decision. They were just very eloquent at backfilling reasons for making a decision that was fundamentally like, mm, I kind of think that's the right one. Mm. And it's an interesting learning. Interpretation is a huge part of the data challenge and being honest with yourself about how much of your own opinion is driving your interpretation is one of the most difficult challenges for anyone, not just as a data practitioner, but as a data consumer. One of the hardest parts of the service model that teams get stuck in is this urgency to answer the next question. And because of that urgency, teams don't get to float in the data and figure out what's going on without having an agenda or something they're looking for. And I think you nailed it. It's if you always are looking for an answer, you're going to figure out some way to find the answer you're looking for. Yeah, especially if you're smart. That's the challenge. When you have smart people, they can give you really compelling stories as to why they <laughs> made a given decision because they're quite eloquent and intelligent. But it may not actually be the real reason why the decision was made. But Emily, we're going to take a quick break here, and then we're going to come back at the end for our last section, which we call Crazy Points, where we get to talk a little bit about how you allocate points for normal stuff and where you allocate your budget for the last 10% of crazy points. But we'll get to that in a second after a quick break. All right, folks, we are back here with Emily to talk a little bit more about crazy points. As I mentioned just before we took the break here, this is an exercise that we do at the end of every show where we talk about how to allocate the 10% of things that you do that are off the beaten path with the idea being that when you're running a company or an organization or building something, most of the time you want to ground it in familiarity. And then you use that last little bit to do things that are a bit out there. And Emily, we've actually kind of touched on this earlier in the podcast when you were talking about spending half a day on something to kind of bend people's perception of the quote unquote right way to do things in small chunks. So I'd love to hear how you think about the framework for deciding what that 10% of crazy points is, right? Because there's so many things that one could do with that extra time. And you've been so thoughtful and so careful in thinking through what's the highest impact set of things I could be doing with that time. And that's reflected in your writing and in your success in your, in your career. So when you're presented with one of these opportunities to spend half a day, how do you think about prioritizing that? 10% of time and picking the actual task that you want to go after? Within an organization's context, I think there's a three-step scale for how mature your data team's work is. So first, it's data as a service, where you're answering questions for other people. Maybe this is where you're building your core data models. You're really trying to understand the questions that the business is thinking about. 
And then you move to data as a product. And this is where you're looking at the data and everything you're building with the data as something that's really about enabling other people to do their own work. And then the third piece is data as operations. And it's really about putting data to work for your business. And the easiest example I would point to is using and leveraging operational analytics or reverse ETL tools to do this, high-touch census grouperoo. But segmenting users on the nurture campaign that they're getting based on things they're doing in the application or putting people in certain experimentation buckets based on certain criteria. When you put data to work for the company, data just like becomes a part of the way people get things done. And that can be truly transformative, not to data teams, but to entire companies. And so if the salesperson doesn't have to go to a BI tool to see the health of their customer, but that is directly in Salesforce where they already are, they can be more informed with data. And so there was a streak there at Netlify where I think I spent all of my crazy points piping data into Calixa, where all of this information around our users, we leveraged reverse ETL tools to get that data into our CRM. And the sales folks had a heyday because now the data was in a place where they could do what they needed to with it. So I think if you're going to decide where to allocate your crazy points, my suggestion is always going to be to carve out some of that insight time where you get to do proactive work and surfacing the things you're finding in the data to the rest of the organization, but also taking that data and those insights and putting it to work for the rest of the company. Yeah. Maybe to characterize what you're you're saying is put that work towards creating magic moments to use, you know, kind of a a common product terminology where people go, oh my goodness, I didn't know that I needed this until I had it. And now I can't imagine going back. Yes. And thinking very deeply around like, okay, what are those, what do I suspect those moments are? And which one do I think I can deliver on in the shortest period of time? Because once you have that moment, you kind of buy yourself the right to go after magic moments that might take more work. And again, on the consumer behavior thing, I think that's how it works in consumer technology too. Like there are certain things that you start to use and you just literally, it's a one-way street, right? And so figuring out which, I guess it's going back to the doors analogy. It's the the one-way doors in the good sense, Mm -hmm. where once you get your user or the person that's consuming your product through that door, they can't imagine possibly going back. And it sounds like what you mentioned with operational analytics is one example of once people see it, they go, oh my goodness, I can't believe I used to do my job any other way. Yes. So many places I've worked at, I've heard stories where other people have this too. It's like once a week, some marketing person downloads a CSV from a dashboard and some BI tool and they manually upload it to some other system. It's like, When you just let that happen and now they've just gained 20 minutes back every week, it's a small thing, a little bit of investment time because you've already done the analysis. You already know what the SQL query is, but you've just 
elevated the way people feel about the data team, their understanding of the things the data team can do, and the impact that the data team is having on the business. Yeah, yeah. I think this is well characterized by one of my colleagues, Shardul Shah, who, when talking about product, has a statement which is, you need to find where the toil is. Because within any role and any company, there's certain things that are work that is not hard, but it is necessary, which he defines as being toil. And if you can provide a product that eliminates toil, because no one likes it, right? You are likely to have a very, very happy customer. And then it's just a matter of monetizing on top of the elimination of that toil. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Emily, I think we are actually at time here, but thank you so much for joining me. So many awesome insights on early adoption, carving your own path, building community, and sort of the patience that it takes to start as the novice and wake up one day as the expert, which you certainly are in the data world now. So thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure. And hopefully we'll do it sometime again soon. Thanks, Brian. Can't wait. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hands On. We always get so much out of these conversations and we hope you do too. Please be sure to stay tuned on your favorite podcast networks for upcoming episodes. And don't hesitate to like, share, comment, or reach out. We also encourage our listeners to follow us and Index Ventures social media channels like LinkedIn, Twitter, and TikTok to stay up to date on the latest investments and initiatives we're supporting. Hands On is a production of Index Ventures and Studio Pod Media with Justin Berardi producing. I'm Molly. And I'm Brian. Thanks. Yes, thanks from all of us at Hands On. Keep the ideas coming. <laughs>